2: ...a woman whose body has been found in a remote area in County Cork. The brutal murder of Sophie du duplantier has shocked the public.
0: She was a French lady. I was the last person spoke to her. Except whoever saw her after me.
2: Sophie Duplantier was among the social elite in Paris. For her, West Cork was a place to reflect...
0: Calm, On a de The region's first murder in living memory.
1: We had no experience of serious crime.
0: We were trying
2: to think of neighbours and work out motives.
0: We were afraid there was a murderer among us.
2: La personne qui a fait ça devra assumer cet act.
0: No witness and no DNA. All we had was circumstantial evidence. On tous. The police irlandaise a
2: suspect. He was reporting on the crime.
0: He appeared at the crime scene. He was acting strange.
2: So why did everyone think he was the murderer? Because he told people that he'd done it. The investigation was thoroughly prejudiced. Ireland
0: never put him on trial. Legally, it's unprecedented in Franco-Irish relations. Pouvez-vous m'expliquer pourquoi cet homme est en liberté? Folks has to go back to Sophie. The one thing I've learned from the stories is that every time you think it has played out, it never fails to surprise you. Et la justice n'a pas de temps. Est-ce que ça vous apporte la paix?
2: On n'a pas la justice de la mort de sa vie Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome to Crime Analyst. Now, as I said in my last episode, this week I'm forensically deconstructing and analysing a new case. It's a case that's deeply troubling. The murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier. Sophie's murder is a case that many of you actually have asked me to analyse, and I've listened to you all, and I agree with you. I know you care about Sophie, and I know you want justice for her. Sophie's case was also highlighted to me by my good friend Alison Sweeney, who some of you know as a successful actor, director, producer, author, and Ali is also a true crime aficionada, and this case really matters to her. She'll explain more as to the why in this episode. So for those of you that haven't heard about Sophie Toscan Duplantier, Sophie was a 39-year-old French TV and film producer. She was also a mother... Just before Christmas, on the morning of December the 23rd, 1996, Sophie's body was found by her neighbour, Shirley Foster, at the bottom of the driveway to her holiday home in Skull, West Cork, Ireland. She had been brutally beaten to death. Sophie's case remains unsolved to this day. Sophie's murder was the subject of the podcast West Cork, which Alison listened to and had a number of interesting questions that she put to me about what happened to Sophie. Now, I hadn't listened to the podcast, but she recommended that I listen to it, which I did. And when we started talking about what happened, as we often do with cases, I thought that you might like to be in on our conversation. And so that's what you're about to hear. Many of the questions that Annie raised are the same ones that you have too, as many of you have sent me messages on social media. And so if you haven't already done so, take a listen to the podcast. There's also a three-part Netflix show, Sophie, A Murder in West Cork, and a five-part Sky docuseries, Murder at the Cottage, A Search for Justice for Sophie, directed by Jim Sheridan, which you may also wish to check out. Now, two more things to say before we dive in. Apologies in advance for the quality of the audio in parts. We had some technical glitches when we recorded. And lastly, and importantly, listener discretion is advised. You're going to hear the details of Sophie's murder, and it was brutal. And you'll also hear about the nuanced behaviour at the crime scene. And we'll discuss many details and aspects of the case It may be triggering or upsetting for some. Unfortunately, it goes with the territory. Murder is distressing. But for my work, the devil's in the detail, and it's really important when analysing cases. Okay, so you're now going to hear part one of our conversation. Hi, Ali. Welcome to Crime Analyst. I'm really excited to have you on. Please go ahead and introduce yourself to my lovely (coughs) listeners. Laura, thank
1: you so much for having me. I always love talking to you. Hi, everyone. I am Allison Sweeney, and I am an avid true crime listener, um, follower, and I make movies about true crime murder mysteries for Hallmark
2: movies and mysteries and podcasters, which is sort of the new genre, yes. isn't it? Of your great right. the mode there. So it
1: is. it feels a little bit like imitating art, imitating life right now.
2: <laughs> exactly. Well, that's why I'm very happy to have you on. And uh, you're a friend of mine and we spend a lot of time talking about crime, don't we, when, when we meet yes. up? And that's I really- always have
1: a thousand questions for you, but I love discussing it with you. And I find your take so interesting on all the podcasts that you do. Crime Analyst has been so fascinating to me. And so, whenever I hear about a new case, I immediately uh, search up what you've said about the subject. And I could not believe when I saw this podcast that you had not commented on it yet. And so, immediately, I had to go right to the source, text you, and say, well, what do you think about it? And then you revealed to me you hadn't even listened to it yet, which I felt very on the cutting edge, actually, to be honest with you. I felt, wow, I finally stumped her.
2: Ahead of the curve. Yes, you you reached out and you asked me about the, the podcast we're talking about is West Cork and the Sophie Toscan Plantier case. And admittedly, quite a few people had messaged me in the past instead "Have I listened to West Cork but when you were intrigued and there were certain areas that you were intrigued about, and I saw that it made into a a Netflix show and it was a female, I I knew a little bit about the case, not a huge amount. And I felt intrigued and particularly as you were asking some really good questions. So the genesis of this was me digging into it and I put a post out on social media and so many people responded to it saying, please discuss this case. And then I was like, Ali, please come on, crime analyst (laughs) and discuss it with me, because I thought that would you ask some brilliant questions and it would be great for people to be able to hear those questions and the answers to them.
1: Well, I kind of want to start with the overview. It's interesting to me that you didn't know a lot about the case, because both the Netflix special and the podcast really give it that feeling that certainly I would have thought in the UK it was like the Madeleine McCon story, right? Like I, I got the impression that that was something everyone in England couldn't have escaped hearing about.
2: Do you remember it at the time? I have to say that I don't. And I was working at New Scotland Yard at, at that time. I was working in between doing my finals in psychology. And I have to say, there didn't seem to be a huge amount of national media about it. And of course, there seems to be a lot of media in Ireland about it, but it didn't seem to uh, be so much uh, across in England and Wales, across the the water. So, and obviously it is an older case. So that's one of the challenges, I think, with Sophie's case is that it is old and... A lot of people, I think maybe in France, there was quite a lot of noise about it, potentially, given Sophie and her husband, but certainly not, as I recall, in England and Wales. Do you find
1: that fascinating? Only that the main suspect, Ian, is indeed English, right? So he comes up there and really what we take away from it, it didn't make the press in the way that perhaps If it had been a woman in England, maybe you would have heard more. It would have been more salacious.
2: I mean, potentially. And, you know, people who know my format and my work, and I know you do as well, Ali, I never really start with the lens of who's in the frame at the time, of who the potential suspect is, because it really does color your view. And that's where biases occur, so I don't remember anything about him. That's not unusual because I, I normally would remember the picture of a victim. And with Sophie in particular, yeah. the, you know, our listeners who don't know who Sophie was, was Sophie Toscan Duplanty was actually born in France. She was 39 years old when she was murdered at the end of the driveway to her beautiful white house. I'm not going to call it a cottage because it, it was quite big. Beautiful. And it was... Yeah, beautifully done. And it was in Skull in, in West Cork. And it was December the 23rd, 1996. Now, she was a TV producer. And her husband was French, Daniel. He was in France at the time. And, and she's so also a was, mother. Yes, a mum to a beautiful young boy. Yes. Which, yes. heartbreaking for Pierre oh. Louis, who was so young at the time. But this really was a mystery. And... I think the way that... So there's the Audible podcast, which is, I think, 14 episodes long. And then, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, the Netflix show, which there's three episodes to it. And there is a third show, just for those who are interested in watching and consuming and listening. There's a third show that aired on Sky, which was Murder at the Cottage, The Search for Justice for Sophie. So there's actually now quite a lot of content about this case. But yes, at the time and even as I was digging in Ali, you know, I've made lots of notes about all three shows and and the podcast in particular. There's a lot more information out there now and there's a lot more people ju- as journalists now writing about the case than what there seemed to ever be back then. Right.
1: Wow. Well that's certainly interesting because what I did take away, and I thought was sort of the most beautiful part of the Netflix special, was getting to see Sophie's family, getting to hear them, and see how, who they are, and how they lived, and her and her uh, second husband, and her beautiful son, and and their story, and their passion for this woman they loved so much, and because of her her relationships with them, they had so many great photos, you really do get the chance to get to know her, feel her and feel their loss in a way that, you know, was important.
2: Absolutely. And you said that so well, because with your, well, I listened to the podcast West Cork on Audible, but I know it's available elsewhere, that being able to situate yourself there, being able to see the cottage, being able to see Sophie's face. I mean, she was very beautiful wasn't she in terms of as a person but also in terms of all the pictures just a real natural beauty and seemed to be a wonderful mother and her son yeah they shared
1: really lovely photos of her with her kid and just at the beach and the the, her hair looks so natural it's such a great way to say it because her hair was in her face and the smile on her face like it just really moved me and you can really relate to how just heartbreaking her loss must have been for everyone in her life. I mean, it's just devastating.
2: Absolutely. And still that legacy lives on. I mean, I think, you know, when we see the Netflix show and you see that her son still goes to West Cork and he's still got her coat hanging up and her tea and he's tried to keep things as his mother wanted them because that's his place that he can go to be close to her. He says in the kitchen, that's where I feel my mom. And
0: Mm-hmm. yeah that
2: really choked me up as well as listening to her parents talk about her and and really bringing her characteristics into full play because i I mean I felt just from the audible podcast or from West Cork the actual podcast itself it was it was very hard to do that to humanize her and to be able to see her and to locate yourself as as good a job as they did with the music and trying to make it a very distinctive podcast that took you to West Cork there's nothing like actually seeing and and being there you know via video etc and seeing Skull Village for yourself and seeing the people that feature very prominently across the podcast right but
1: for me and this is a conversation you and I had uh, previously about this the podcast I felt was really skewed to the suspects involved and how the case was investigated I felt it was much more from that point of view based on one very strong character and and that I don't mean that in a disparaging way I, I that was a very clear point of view that those podcasters came at it from those journalists and it's just now having all the other information like Netflix show and the sky one you mentioned it, it's a much more well-rounded, Information we have on the entire case and understanding Sophie. But I, I have to admit, you know, if you just listen to the podcast, you would come at it with one person dominating your point of view.
2: Yes. Love them or hate
1: them. But that is, ta- it just takes up everything you're thinking about.
2: Yes. And I agree with you on that. In, in fact, what I would say is that from having watched both the shows and in particular listening to the podcast, they all say that they're trying to situate Sophie uh, as the central person and narrative, but I don't feel they succeed in that. And I feel that he takes over and that's hugely problematic, this character that becomes larger than life and then we all are forced to focus on him, which I think is very conflicting. I mean, it certainly is for me from an investigative point of view, although you do want to see later on once you've formed an understanding of the case but you don't want to have any sense of that person until much later down the road when you've formed your right thoughts and that's what I struggled well, with, with Sophie, the podcast. and
1: and that's exactly right and I, I kind of want to jump into it because while it's fresh in my mind Sophie and her decision to be in Ireland at in West Cork I have traveled to Ireland once in my life and had a that was part of what drew me to wanting to talk to you about it, and had the most beautiful time there. And it is such a gorgeous country, uh, and the people are so unique and interesting. And uh, it was in, there were so many um, characters that you met in the in the Netflix documentary, also in particular. But those are the people of Ireland I, I remember in visiting, and I can I can just understand why Sophie would go why she loved to visit there, why she went in the winter to be with the locals. There were so many questions about why do you, why does a mom go by herself at Christmas? I I think there was something really beautiful about it. Her taking that time for herself in this cabin or this cottage home, beautiful place. I mean, there's so, there's so many things about it that I would think, yeah, I can totally see why she, why she chose that.
2: And good for her. Absolutely, and and I felt that very much from the start with the the podcast. You know, we know she was thirty nine. She was around five foot, blonde, beautiful. Never flaunted her beauty. That was her bolt hole. That was her place to go. And she always wanted tranquility. And I really yes. didn't like this kind of questioning of, well, why is she there? You know, the house is very isolated. Is she looking for a love interest? What's she doing there? As if she has to yeah. be doing something nefarious rather than just being a woman who wants a bolt hole, who you know, has a busy life in Paris and this is her holiday home. Why can't she just be exactly. a mum, right. a, a woman, a writer, a TV documentary maker who has a bolt hole? And of course, we go back to 1996, and yes, there's some time distance there. But I think we always get this skewed lens, don't we, around women. That what could she right. possibly be doing in this isolated house? And she's just looking for tranquility. That was in her nature. There seemed to be a very introverted side to her. And yes.
1: And and different from her husband, right? Who led sort of a public life and she loved they seemed very happy, at least, you know, sort of what our takeaway is meant to be is that she loved him and she loved their life. But part of that, I would think, you know, even for someone like me who spends a lot, in fact, right, the more time you spend in public on red carpets, having your photo taken, the more you do need time by yourself to decompress and unwind. And especially as someone, well, not especially anyone, deserves that and needs that and, if you can find that opportunity and take it for yourself, good for you. But also if she's a creative person, you know, her own producer, maybe she was needing that time to reprocess what she wants to work on next in the coming year. I mean, who's to say what what was going, what she wanted, but, you know, I I don't think we would be asking those same questions if she were. a man.
2: We wouldn't be. And I think the media put her, you know, into that frame as well, as we so often see that the affairs, the nefarious things, looking for all the negatives, reporting on her with the negatives. And that present day still drives me crazy. And we have to look, you know, these double standards that happen, it all plays a part, particularly in a small village and particularly in a small place like West Cork, but what was interesting, actually, Ali, was that most of the locals all said very lovely things about her. Yes. And, you know, they didn't share that narrative that was being put in the media. Um, they all Agreed. said she was a lovely woman. So actually, and she was quiet. And if she was having these wild orgies and these parties that they all would have known about it. And she wasn't doing of course. that. And,
1: and, and in fact, what I loved about West Cork in general was just their welcoming, inviting it, it, you know, they sort of had a, a very modern take on everyone that they were, the blow-ins, the, as they called them, people who would come to Ireland or come to their neck of the woods from anywhere else in the world. And and I think you had to be, I mean, your family had to be there for over a hundred years to be counted as the local. So, so they gave everyone the credit of being a blow-in. And it was just so wonderful to hear how how much they liked her, how much they enjoyed having her there in their community, what an impression she made of, on all of them, and and that they really it, it came across to me that they took in everyone in that same manner, uh, people who came there.
2: Yeah, and I, you know, I think that that was all very natural in terms of the way when we hear the Mong. In, on camera, but also in the podcast, you know, she's not a vixen. She's not, she wasn't promiscuous and they give us a much better flavour about who she was rather than some of the, the tabloid media and particularly some and the of the headlines. People, yeah, who were framing her. But I think we do see that with women full stop. Maybe that's just the flavour, um, again, of, of what we see, of the misogyny. But I think with the podcast, what's interesting, I mean, Jennifer Ford and Sam Bungie, who wrote and produced the podcast, a British couple that I would say, yes, they're investigative journalists, but they're not investigators used to dealing with the police. And therefore, I think we get a very different type of narrative in terms of even phraseology, you know, red herrings, double agents, these sorts of words that we hear, but actually tells me that they haven't had much experience with law enforcement. So I think... That on the one hand, we have to weigh up that, yes, they've done some good storytelling, but the questions that maybe they should be or could have been asking of people could have been a bit different. And particularly when we're talking about the main individual who sort of takes over directing them and overproducing them and wanting to be the dominant character the whole way throughout. There was, for me, quite a a sense of familiarity. Um, When you get familiarity like that, when relationships get built, it can be problematic because it does skew your view. And perhaps there was just too much direction coming from that, well, coming from him in particular. And actually, they do disclose in the final episode, I'm sorry if I'm spoiling it for anyone, that they did spend a lot of time within Bailey and Jules yeah. Thomas, and they spent time eating with them, breaking bread with them, and therefore... I, I thought it was
1: important and honest on their part to sort of be admit, and, and a- along the way, I think even in the way they narrated it, they disclosed what a big personality he was, that he came in with an agenda and, and sat down and wanted to talk about something, so they were open to letting him, you know, I, I don't think they hide that from the listener, But in some ways, it came across as someone who produces a little bit, you know, in TV myself, it it came across like almost as if there was this big personality. And that's what prompted the podcast as opposed to Sophie or the case. You know, it it really felt like Ian's personality is what drove that podcast full stop.
2: Yes. And I think that's true of the, the shows, too. For me, as an independent investigator, that's it, it's good that they disclosed it, as you said, but it is problematic. And it's problematic because everyone starts out with, we want to do this for Sophie, but they end up in the process with actually half of what right. they're doing is about him, if not more. Right. And so when we're so busy focusing on him, we're not keeping an open mind about all the other alternatives. Um, it was quite right. similar too. And, you know, I, I will say what kept jumping to mind was Michael Peterson in the staircase. Yes. Um, You know, similar to, to that. But before we get into him, let's talk about actually what happened, shall we, in terms of the murder itself of what we do know about, because there are... Indeed, yeah. There's, there's a lot that comes before him. And I, I think with Sophie's case, the challenge of it being so historical, it's a cold case... And the fact that the investigation was so woefully inadequate creates a major challenge as well. And, you know, the fact that she, her body was found by a neighbor who, when we say neighbor, they're in a very rural area, aren't they? The house is very isolated and she's found at the and bottom also, of the driveway. Did they,
1: I can't, and I can't remember what they said, but it had been maybe the first murder that they had had to investigate in 50 years or or in anyone's lifetime, right? I mean, they they didn't have a lot of experience dealing with this. And it was, the, you know, two days before Christmas. So you have to imagine, or three days before Christmas, you have to imagine, right, what a shock it is, how unexpected it is. And yeah, I, I just got the impression that, that this was not, and that they didn't want to turn it over to, I think they ended up turning it over to the Dublin police uh to investigate but it did not seem like that was their first choice
2: yeah spot on it was actually the first murder there in living memory so yeah. That tells you about lack of experience, knowledge. But well, it also tells you about close community and good relations. And that's a very positive yeah. thing, actually, isn't it? Right. You flip it on its head. Of course. Tells you a lot about the locals and the locality and the community. And why that she there. chose
1: to go there and why she felt okay being alone in some beautiful house with, by the way, this the light, her bedroom that she chose and getting to see the the lighthouse That was something else that really bothered me. They acted like I shouldn't get carried away. But I felt that there was this impression like that she had taken the curtains off the window as if to suggest that that was some somehow promiscuous. Uh, You know, anyone could see in. Well, there's no one there. There was no one anywhere. You're by yourself uh, for miles. And she wanted to look at the light from the lighthouse. I mean, it was beautiful. And. It just, I felt that was colored in a way that wasn't fair.
2: Yes. And if you put it in context, as we just have, it makes perfect sense. She was living and and went there for respite and she'd raised her bed so that she could actually look out onto the the, um, lighthouse and look out onto the ocean. And I would imagine that for a creative person, I mean, I love the water and I love hearing the ocean. I love being able to see it. So that was the whole point. It was her her absolute tonic compared to Paris. And yes, there was a whole narrative around, well, there were no curtains, therefore, you know, well, French women love to be nude. There was some kind of reference to yes. nudity and the, and it kind of was lumped together with promiscuity, which made me bristle because when Indeed. we know the me context. Too. Yeah, and I think most women would bristle at that because that you can be unsexualized and just be... Enjoying nature and your privacy, particularly in a rural area where you've got no one around you and where you do feel safe. And she obviously did feel safe there. And I think her actions had that a good tell to. us that. Absolutely, right. when we understand so, the context. Yeah.
1: Allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island, where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Right. So, right, I can't imagine the shock for her neighbor to discover her body because... You know, she had left that party, right? Um, There was that lovely Irishman that she was speaking to, uh, the pub owner, right? And he said, you know, he was the last person to see her and she, she just wanted to go home, which was totally normal. And off she went. And they just didn't think anything of it. She seemed fine. Uh, And then the next person. I think she'd been drinking
2: tea, hadn't she with, with the publican that she'd gone in and there was a party that night, but I don't think she showed up. I think that the last thing that she did was have tea in the pub and she was always quite, well, very sociable to him and, you know, sat up at the bar and, but she, she didn't show up. And we know that she did have a phone call with her husband that night around 11 o'clock at night. Right. So she chose not
1: to go to the party uh, and she wanted to be at home, and she talked to her husband. I'm trying to think if there's something else about that night that stands out for me. But I know that this is jumping ahead, but there was a lot made about the two glasses of wine on her sink or on the counter, you know, that have been cleaned. And it, it, the impression given right away, there must have been a second person having wine with her. And I don't know why it was never brought up, but I have a glass of wine. And then the next night, I have another glass of wine, and and for, like that could be two glasses. It doesn't necessarily mean that someone was there drinking wine with her. It could very easily have been her wine glass from the previous night, and then that next night she had another She got a clean glass. She didn't want to wash them right away. Or so I mean, I, I don't know. That really bothered me that that no one considered another option except for that there must have been in the house. the only. Yes.
2: Yes, particularly if you're drying a glass, you know, naturally just on the side. um, Everything points to actually looking at the crime scene photos that she was there alone and she had this last phone call at 11 o'clock. Then what we do know, and of course, from the the podcast, you don't get a sense of the house and what was going on or in terms of even the time sequence. But what we do know is that her body was found around 10 o'clock by um, Shirley Foster, who was living with Alfie Lyons in a house. Uh, relatively close, but in, in terms of, they used the same driveway, but not in terms of proximity of it being a neighbouring house. And she was coming down the lane and out. She would have expected the gate to have been shut. And Sophie's driveway was quite long. It was a, a few hundred yards, actually, to get down to the, and a, and a hillside to get down to the drive. Sorry, the gate at the bottom of the drive. And the gate would normally be shut. But Shirley observed that the right. gate was open and saw, unfortunately, Sophie's body at the side. And and she was brutally murdered. And I, I want to yeah. make that point, because whoever killed her brutally killed her. And to me, what's interesting as well is that actually the weapons that were used, which was a, a breeze block and a piece of slate, they were actually in that locality rather than someone bringing them with them right so again just breaking down the the crime scene and i know it's a a horrible thing to have to do but we have to ask questions for me you know the who the what the where the when the why the why part of the motive would take us to the whom um and just thinking about what happened well we know that she put her boots on and she was still wearing her knife but she was
1: yeah, her pajamas, right. So, um, that's the other an interesting thing about point. that, it is interesting also that did you agree with their impression that the, you know, uh, cement block or whatever that was uh, looked heavy, first of all, to me, but that the impression they or someone mentioned, one of the investigators mentioned, was that perhaps she had already been killed. And then that final, uh, uh cement block was used to sort of I, I don't it's so terrible to say but somehow bashed on her head at the end like some sort of definitive final thing different from the scrape, scraps and uh, scrapes and scratches in in what might have been a bit of a um fight
2: Yes, I mean, it is difficult to say, isn't it? I mean, when I go through sequence events, you're trying to work out, well, A, why would she possibly go out in the middle of the night? You know, if we know she finishes a phone call, at, let's say we we don't have a definitive time, but she speaks to her husband last in France at 11-ish, they say. So what would get you up in the middle of the night to actually leave your house, to put your boots on? It was really cold at that time of year. And she's wearing her pajamas to then go down the hill and to be situated there rather than if someone comes to the door, for example. uh, Why wouldn't you invite
1: them in or? Yeah, if it was someone like something quick, right? If it was if you were meant to go and you were thinking it would be a longer conversation, you would need to put clothes on and be dressed for it. So, I, I mean, to me, it's as simple as, oh, I forgot to close the gate maybe she meant to do that maybe her husband says to her you know did you remember to shut the gate at night oh honey i I mean i'm just trying to imagine what would get her or did they meet or did she not mean to leave her house and something happens in the doorway that she then you know that was one of the investigators suggesting that 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 the perpetrator lured her away or forced her away from the house. But if she was running away from something, she ran away from her neighbors. She ran in the opposite direction of help.
2: Yeah, um, and from her house. Whichever way you play it, she's running away from her house and the threats there. But the forensics is massively problematic. And so it's really difficult to say sequentially what happened uh, to build that sequence of events so the forensics are a major challenge. The playing through the different scenarios, she put her boots on. So we know that she is intentional to go out. And whatever unfolded, I do believe unfolded quickly in that moment down by the gate because the objects that were used, the weapons, the breeze block, that concrete breeze block. Yes, you would have to have a a little bit of strength to wield that. but And I believe that that was secondary. I believe that she was hit First of all, with the slate. With um, and the slate. It's, it, it's very bloodied. Uh, you know, as a crime scene, you get to see some of those pictures, and it's explained why you see them in the murder at the cottage documentary to, to show how violently she was killed. You know, when people say, oh, well, she also, lost her life, it, it was brutal. Right. Um, it was brutal. Yeah. But
1: also, there were those spiny plants, the bristles, uh, all yeah, the right there. All it all isn't around. a place it isn't a place you would have chosen to stand and have a conversation with someone. You know, I, she did not mean to be standing there. However, she ended up in that particular place. So however, she got herself down to the end of that driveway. I, I can't imagine. I, it's just so troubling and, and also troubling how quickly the investi- the original investigators in 1996 sort of jumped to all sorts of conclusions about it without um i felt like none of them were having this conversation
2: yes and you, you have to keep an open mind and i think seeing that location you're you're right ali the briars uh you know these very thorny prickly bushes but also Shrubs, the barbed they wire. were short yeah right and there was barbed wire as well and part of her pajamas was caught on the barbed wire the gate was bloodied which was her blood so I think the the slate probably came first. I believe she was probably unconscious. And then whoever it was went and picked up the concrete block and literally smashed her head in. That was an intentioned act. That wasn't a something has happened, we've fought, and she fought for her life. I think just being clear, that when I saw the pictures of her hands, they were very bruised, very scratched, and her nails. It it looked like there was quite a lot of material under her nails. So there's a question about, I I think there's only one mention of it's not Ian Bailey's skin under her nails, but I don't know whether it was anybody else's. So there's all these questions about, well, if it's not him, did they actually retrieve anything? And the hair that was found wrapped in her hands was her own hair. So we can say she fought tooth and nail. She's five foot, her mother talked about her victimology, that she was, and I don't like using this word, but she, she was feisty. She would make her point very clear. So that fits with somebody who would fight, mm-hmm. but they're fighting by the gate. So whatever unfolded, I believe it unfolded there. And there was nothing upset at the
1: door and that tiny little area, entrance area inside, it just didn't indicate at all that there was something, uh, anything amiss. And you would know, I mean, if there had been some sort of struggle there, it, it, there's no way you could have, I mean, they were suggesting perhaps the person came and cleaned it up. And and I just don't know that I see that as possible.
2: Certainly from looking at the crime scene photos, even with the, the blood, it looks like a knuckle brush, you know, it's an insignificant amount of blood at the back door, you would expect. And they said with intrepidation, they opened the door, but nothing else had been disturbed. So it does seem that everything else unfolded outside the house. And so whatever was the argument, the, the discussion, you've got a neighbour hearing a scream. He put it down to a, an animal. But that right. is so isolated, it, it's difficult to say. And then you've got the time and distance um, of people's and accounts the weather, and timelines.
1: The weather in Ireland on the ocean, it, it could really have carried the voice in a way that you know carried away some of the voices uh it, it could have changed a lot of his perception the neighbor's perception about what he heard
2: yeah I mean he did just put it down to an animal and you know jumped back in the car but what was noticeable was that he said it stopped him in his tracks so that's interesting I mean he had been at a na- he'd been a I don't know if it was Alfie's house but it was one of the the neighbors and Ned's bearing in mind most people have been out and been having a few drinks. But he did say before he got in his car, he stopped and listened. And then you kind of rationalize things. Oh, it's probably, you know, a fox, an animal, whatever. Mm -hmm. And he got back in the car, but he did noticeably stop. And we also have to remember that the investigation was problematic because those who arrived at the scene, where they're arriving later, so around, you know, after 10 o'clock, then they didn't preserve the scene particularly well. And they left her body out in the elements, which was really deeply troubling to me that they didn't have anybody come out to do the autopsy or to take the body. And therefore, they just put a sheet over her and left her out there. So there's huge problems with that.
1: And uh, if I remember correctly, they also didn't ask the neighbours and the relevant people to tell their story of what they saw and heard that night for weeks, uh, if not months later. There were a lot of people who said, I I wasn't asked what I remembered about that night for a long time.
2: Yeah. So timelines are very problematic and equally her body being left out, left in the elements The forensics. Apparently, they say that they didn't retrieve any forensics from the crime scene, which I find quite surprising because
1: even even in 1996 they knew i mean the o j simpson trial was in 95 94 95 so i mean it's not it it was a thing
2: yeah they did seize things but they seized them 13 hours later and i th- i can't remember if it was on the netflix show but the pathologist said that he didn't go out to the scene he didn't see the point the the body would have been frozen and because of the weather, the inclement right. weather at that time, that's how cold it was. And he didn't see the point until the next day. So you've got potential animals. You've got cross-contamination issues. So they did seize things. They seized the gate, but apparently the gate was lost. And they did test the blood and they said that it belonged to Sophie. They said they seized the concrete breeze block, they didn't get any fingerprints from it. But the surface, that's probably right. They probably didn't get any fingerprints back then from it. But there was blood. Did they try and get anything from the blood? From the Were there any bloodied prints there or from the slate? And I mean, there's many more questions that I would ask just about the, the forensics too, because they did seize a lot of things. But of course, you've got all sorts of issues from it all being left out there and people trampling through the scene. You've got journalists and do you coming think, out to the scene. You've got oh, other officers coming yeah. out. You've got neighbors turning up, and I don't know how well they cordoned it off or preserved things. And do you? And that seems
1: to me, the way you're saying it, you think that's a fair criticism to make of in 1996. I mean, we're yes, it's a cold case, but we're not talking about the 1940s. We're talking about 1996. Those those are fair expectations to have at that time.
2: Well, yes and no, to be to be fair, because they are inexperienced. They haven't had a murder before. They would have read these things from manuals and from books, from seen in films, etc. And and I still go back to you referenced um Nicole's case and, and Ron Goldman. I still go back to an image of the the scene where Nicole was killed, Nicole Brown. I'm watching and I can replay it in my mind seeing probably about five detectives walking up and down the stairs and through yes. the bloodied area that she was killed and so they you know there was huge cross contamination huge issues there because of lack of scene preservation so yes forensics were new uh, across the world but in particular when we're talking about West Cork when we're talking about a tiny village when we're talking about you know one Garda on duty being notified then calling others in calling people from Dublin who have more experience um, and being reluctant to call people from Dublin. I'm not even sure exactly of the timeline, but the lack of knowledge, the lack of specialists certainly got this case off to a very bad start. And again, I will say just in terms of entertainment and storytelling, what they did with the podcast You know, the music, the production value, the the storytelling is very interesting. But the questions that would be asked in a real investigation would be much tougher, much more difficult uh, for people like Ian Bailey and others. And the same goes for the Netflix show and for Murder at the Cottage, where you've got Jim Sheridan, who is Emmy... Award-winning and very Oscar-winning, yeah, yeah, Yeah. for for what he does. But is he an investigator? Should he be walking us through and questioning people? Everyone has their own view. I don't know what what you felt about that, having just seen a a couple of the episodes. But he's kind of Columbo-esque, isn't he? There's this kind of sense that he's the he's the Columbo. I have to say,
1: it's just such a because it is you know something I think about all the time. Uh, different. When you are looking for, there is an entertainment factor, you know, when you are making a documentary, you, you are looking to keep the interest of your audience. You are looking for the clicks of people to tune in. They are not the, it is, is different from someone whose job it is to genuinely solve the case with no interest I mean, I imagine in some ways you would know better than I, Laura, but I imagine actually your real job is quite boring, right? I I know from Dave, lots of times he's just sitting there at a desk writing and and that's not fun to watch. You know, he's just looking at pictures or doing his work in a way that isn't compelling television. And that does, that is a real struggle for people trying to make a documentary about it because really it's people who are interesting to listen to are going to get more airtime. And so uh, in some way and 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 you do service this case, right? And bring attention to Sophie and try to help people, maybe spur someone. I mean, there have been podcasts, right, that have created enough discussion that that people did come forward that had never before. So it does hopefully celebrate Sophie and and give tribute to her but but they do also have to get people to watch and want to watch the whole thing and 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 that makes it difficult to really be a true investigation there just was never actually a true investigation
2: yes and that's where we have to be careful of you know when we describe things is it a reinvestigation or is it a exploration and I would say it's not a reinvestigation and therefore it's much better to situate it as you know an exploration, and they, in fairness to both Sam and Jennifer, say in the final sort of post mortem of what went on. You know what I what I did like them saying is that documentaries do come with a, a POV, and they they tried very hard not to have a point of view, and. Even with, you know, thinking about spending a lot of time with Ian Bailey, I really like the fact that they referenced John Ronson and that they spoke to him and they made the point of not diagnosing people with Mm. psychopathy, etc. And I hear that all the time, Ali. It's one of my bugbears at the moment of people diagnosing others as sociopaths, you know, psychopaths. Um, As if everybody's now, not just an armchair detective, but now they're all forensic psychologists as well. (laughs) And I think you have to be really careful. And they didn't step into those areas and they made that point. And I think it's also where you really do need to call in investigators, specialists to help you if you are going to be doing, because we're talking about real people's lives. This isn't just a bit of fun. You frame someone in a certain way and they become a suspect there's potential litigation there. But equally, if you want to do a real service for the victim, why not have a consultant producer? Why not have... I mean, it's the same as when you started doing your, you know, the podcasting side of the yes. investigations and bring it, bring it to screen. We spoke numerous times about, but could you do this or would would that be right. realistic? And so you approached it in the right way because you were being curious and you felt responsibility and you wanted to do it in the right way. And I just feel oftentimes that doesn't happen. Um, and then what is produced then becomes fact. And then we create the same problem as what's gone on in the past because that's it's right. not, not balanced and you haven't got someone playing all sides of things of throwing it, you know, in terms of a, an experienced investigator or CSI or whoever it might be that's called upon to help grapple with some of these major issues.
1: Right. And Because what it needed was that experienced eye giving the audience the chance to see the other side while you're hearing people talk, while you're hearing Ian telling his story, uh, while you're hearing the media's various narratives. What you really needed what I could have really been interested in more of, and what I loved talking to you about when we when I listened to you analyze these types of documentaries, is is the gaps, the things that I wouldn't notice was missing until I hear you mention it. And certainly, having listened to a lot, there were there were parts of the investigation of Sophie's crime scene that just are so clearly right, leaving the, for the for the autopsy to not happen right away to leave the body I mean that does seem like that's evidence you'll never get back that and then and then there were so many elements that felt uh, their process of investigation and the way they went through it in both the Netflix show and the podcast felt very much based on the rumors that they were hearing in town and what people were saying and oh his, 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 speaking of armchair site uh psychologists, I feel like they were talking about him howling at the moon and a weird stick that he carried. And and that and so he must have killed her. You know, I mean you could really sort of feel that their investigation was led by a lot. It felt like it was led by a lot of rumor.
2: Yeah, rumor and conjecture. And that's hugely problematic. But we remember, you know, a small town or village locality operates on intelligence gossip on you know and Mm -hmm. who we like who we don't like and he clearly is not likable right Ian Bailey's just not So how do
1: you take that yes right and they no one tried to hide that but what as an investigator what do you make of that how do you balance that out with people like for example the West Memphis three those kids weren't likable they weren't popular that doesn't mean they you know that can very much color right
2: yeah. Well, uh, you know, I think you always have to have that open mind. And it's the same as when I first heard, heard Sarah Koenig's serial and the, the podcast, and she said, Oh, I've just gotten off the phone from Adnan. Could someone really this nice, seriously be a killer? Question right. mark. And I just screamed at the, you know, of course he can. That's such a naive thing to say. And that's what I mean, when you come at things with, uh, from either end of the spectrum, either They're so charismatic. They're so nice. And you get taken in because you have this caricature of what a killer acts and looks like. Well, unfortunately, Bailey's at the other end where he ticks all those boxes because he's not likable as a person. And he clearly loves to be in the limelight. And he clearly in that little village would stand up and do his terrible poetry and... You know, people didn't like him, therefore he's kind of the perfect fit, isn't he? And then when things two and two can equal five and you get wedded, this tunnel vision to, well, it must be him because he's got scratches on his hands and he said something on a video and all these things then start to make sense. And, you know, what I will say about the police investigation, it's not just woefully inadequate, it was outrageous in parts of using informants and coercing people into doing things. These are not good ways to run an investigation. And it seemed that when they hit a bit of a brick wall with France and not being able to question people there through the gendarme, then all roads were closed even more to just looking at one suspect and one person stood out amongst many. And that's classic tunnel vision. You have to keep an open mind. You know, that's the 101. Forensics, open mind. And there were a number of detectives. I mean, Fitzgerald in particular, who comes up with both Marie Farrell, Fiona, and also with Martin Chapman as being one of the key drivers around wanting to produce statements that clearly implicate Ian Bailey. And that's not the point of when you do, I mean, they call them agents and double agents. In fact, in policing, it's called informants, covert human intelligence sources. And that happens all the times where you run people as informants, but you don't tell them what to say or you don't give them certain things that will manipulate them in a certain direction. So those things were very problematic for me. While jumping in here, I hope you found part one of our conversation interesting and enlightening. Send me your thoughts on social. On Instagram, I'm at Crime Analyst, or Twitter, at The Crime Analyst. Or you can email me via my website, www.crime-analyst.com. And suffice to say, Ali and I were not done there. We had a lot more to talk about. So I hope you'll join me back in the intelligent cell for part two of our discussion. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios.